We'll turn now to our consideration this morning from Daniel, Daniel chapter 3. You recall that Daniel and his friends were tested, tested in chapter 1, whether they would eat of the dainties and the king's meat, or whether they would depend on, on the Lord and his, his strength. Second chapter, it deals with the test of the dream that was given to Nebuchadnezzar and, and the revelation that was given to Daniel. We considered that some time ago about the kingdom, um, the kingdoms of this earth and the kingdom of God. And then we come to this chapter 3 where they're going to be tested, at least Daniel's three friends, again. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold whose height was threescore cubits and the breadth thereof six cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, sent to gather together the princes, the governors, and the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar, the king, had set up. And you'll notice here there's constant repetition of both who comes and the call to worship. It's almost an irony that the author, Daniel, here is is setting before us in contrast to the simplicity of worshiping God alone. Then the princes, the governors, the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and the rulers of all the provinces were gathered together to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O people, nations, and languages, that at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, has set up. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth, shall the same hour be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and all kinds of music, all the people, the nations, and the languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Wherefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came near and accused the Jews. They spake and said to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. Thou, O king, hast made a decree that every man that shall hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sack, but psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music, shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth, that he should be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom thou hast set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not regarded thee. They serve not thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in his rage and fury, commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spake and said unto them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, do not ye serve my gods, nor worship the golden image which I have set up? 
Now, if ye be ready, that at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the image which I have made. Well, but if ye worship not, ye shall be cast the same hour into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, full of fury, and the form of his visage was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore he spake and commanded that they should heat the furnace one seven times more than it was wont to be heated. And he commanded the most mighty men that were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their hosen, and their hats, and their other garments, and were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's commandment was urgent, and the fire a furnace exceeding hot, the flame of the fire slew those men that took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, was astonished, and rose up in haste, and spake, and said unto his counselors, Did not we cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said unto the king, True, O king. He answered and said, Lo, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spake and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, ye servants of the Most High God, come forth and come hither. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came forth of the midst of the fire. And the princes, governors, and captains, and the king's counselors being gathered together saw these men, upon whose bodies the fire had no power, not was a hair of their head singed. Neither were their coats changed, nor the smell of fire had passed on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar spake and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who hath sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted in him and have changed the king's word and yielded their bodies that they might not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree that every people, nation, and language which speak anything amiss against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces and their houses shall be made a dunghill because there is no other god that can deliver after this sort. Then the king promoted 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So ends our reading this morning of God's holy, inspired, fallible word. Beloved, in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are today at Reformation Day. We've heard a message last Lord's Day, and we hope to hear another tonight about Reformation and the call we have today uh, to be reminded of these things and to live in light of them. But I thought couched between these two Reformation messages, if we truly are praying for revival and Reformation, and we're looking for that to take place, most often it will not take place without suffering, without persecution, without us being called to speak and to live lives that are devoted and consecrated more and more to Christ. Now, we've lived through the past couple of decades with our culture sowing the seeds of the need for tolerance. We've moved out of a somewhat Christian, at least outward view, to the view that we need to have tolerance for all kinds of people and all kinds of ideas and religions. Broad-mindedness and openness were the theme of multiculturalism. And today, in its wake, has come the wokeness and the critical race theory that perhaps even seems appealing to some in our culture on its surface, but in reality, it is indeed causing greater division and greater separation and anger and hatred and departure from the Word of God. And not only demands that we be tolerant of others and their so-called rights of worship even, and their religion or their viewpoints, Um, but it is also now particularly targeted against the culture of whiteness, and with that, undoubtedly, is its disdain for Christianity. When we look at our culture and its setting before us, no longer tolerance being the word, but you must submit. You must obey the orders, the mandates, the recommendations, the the requirements. And perhaps we come to the house of God hoping to hear something that distracts us from our present world, Because we face that every day. It's on everyone's lips, more or less, or at least to some degree in our thoughts. What's going on in our world today? When we think of others, of our brothers and sisters, not simply in persecuted countries, but even in our northern border and in various other places where freedom of religion used to be common, today it is regulated. Today, they cannot gather freely as we still, thankfully, can do here and now. In first century Rome, people, too, were allowed to believe what they wanted to and worship whoever or whatever they chose to do. But it was also with this little pinch of incense that they needed to give in the name of Caesar and say, Caesar is 
Lord. And we're finding increasingly in our culture, and um, I think we need to be aware of the time in which we live more than ever before. Facebook is not simply Facebook any longer. It's becoming metaverse in which transhumanism, if you haven't heard of that, you should, and we need to come aware of it, where we combine our technology and our, our physical material beings so that we become more one and one together. What does that mean for us as the church and believers? Well, that means for those who are promoting it, you can live in your own reality. You can create your own universe and you can be your own God. You know, when the early church faced these issues of their day, they knew and believed in the one true God. And they would not submit themselves or their bodies to whatever Caesar said. Their faith in this one true God were revealed in their actions and in their words. So how can we stand today in light of all that's happening around us? We are called, if we would keep true to our name of Christian, to be martyrs. Now that may sound frightening. But the word martyr itself simply means witness. At times being a faithful witness leads us to the point of being called to suffer. Even to the point of death. That's what we generally think of being a martyr. And many who have gone through times of revival in the history of the world and reformation, it was not without great suffering and persecution. So let's not fool ourselves in imagining that we can pray for reformation and revival in our time and we can escape witnessing and being called even to give our lives. It will not happen. Perhaps you've heard of Tertullian, the famous second century lawyer who was converted by watching the Christians as they walked by singing to their death. No wonder he gave this famous statement, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Are we determined? Have we consciously decided To be this kind of follower of Jesus Christ. There were some Americans who went to visit those in China. And it was an underground church. They met in darkness in an office after midnight. And the first question the leader of the group asked them was, What are your wounds for Christ this week? And the three Americans, when they were asked this question, said, oh, we're not wounded in our country or persecuted. You see, we live in America. Incredulously, one of the women there spoke with a trace of irony. She said, you mean you don't have the devil present in America? You didn't let him in? And the leader of the Chinese group explained that the viewpoint of those in China regarding persecution is 
If we become a Christian, then Christ's enemies are our enemies. And we are involved and engaged in this battle. It's a spiritual battle, yes, but it's also one that comes into actual reality in our lives. And when one of the Americans mentioned they thought if you were put in jail for your faith or, or um, in other ways were persecuted, this member said, if you don't have wounds for Christ, how do you know you are alive in Christ? Wounds bring joy because then you know you are making a difference. I, I remember when I was serving in, in Burgessville and we had Voice of Martyrs come to speak. And one of the questions from uh, the elderly who were there listening to this presentation was, should we write letters to those who are persecuted? Because maybe if we write those letters, they will actually suffer worse from the hands of their persecutors. You know what the voice to the martyrs representative said? No, you continue to write. They would want you to. In our persecution, they will tell you we grow, we have joy. Can we imagine that in 21st century United States? To have joy in our suffering for Christ? When all the complaining we've done over the last couple of years of just some inconvenience to some degree when these men and women, our brothers and sisters, actually put their lives on the line for their faith? Do we know with expectation and joy because we are in Christ which will fire us with zeal to speak more boldly? Are we speaking boldly in his name today? Because the suffering and testing of believers is still part of God's plan for his people. Our master, our savior, suffered grievously in the hands of wicked men. And he told us, Don't expect something different. If you will follow me, take up your cross. It's not only true in the New Testament. Boys and girls, children, we see it here in Daniel 3 as well. And that's what I want to look at this morning with God's help with you. And this theme of delivered unto death. Paul mentions this to the Corinthians as well. We are delivered unto death daily. And it's it's the life of a true believer when we are living in the way that God would want us to live. We don't look for persecution, but when it comes, we look to him to help us as he did these men. First, there's a dilemma. Second, the decision, the determination with which they address Nebuchadnezzar. And lastly, there is the deliverance, the glorious deliverance of these men by the Lord. Well, this is one of these stories in the Old Testament that really grips our attention. It just captivates us, doesn't it? Our, 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 our children like to hear these stories of Joseph, how God intervenes and miraculously helps Joseph at the end of the story. 
But there's a couple of things we need to keep in mind as we consider these kinds of stories. The first thing is this. Do you believe that God is able to do what he did to Daniel's friends today? Or do we read this as if it's some sort of supernatural, unexpected, and it was... Or do we believe that this God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is our God? And so if he will deliver us, he will deliver us. But if it means he won't, we will not change what we have confessed. But the second thing, other than, you know, do we believe this can still happen today, that God will be near us, he certainly will. But secondly, children, remember... That as these three friends of Daniel are confronted with this choice, they did not know the end of the story. It's wonderful to us to read it again this morning and to know they're going to be delivered. If you knew you were going to be delivered, it's, it's no skin off your back to say, yeah, I'll do that. Because you know the end. But that's what faith does. We know by faith that no matter what man can do to us, they cannot touch our soul, though they destroy the body. Our Lord told us so. Well, let's go to this history. As I said in reading, this history follows after chapters 1 and 2, in which, um, indeed, these friends of Daniel and Daniel himself had been persecuted. They had been taken captive by the Babylonian Empire and brought into uh, this new kingdom in which they were to be trained as thoroughgoing Babylonians. And from the early chapters already, we find that these men determined in their hearts not to submit to that which would lead them astray from their God. And they were blessed. They were honored. They, they already experienced in some way, I suppose you could say, a deliverance when they were, were promoted. Then they had the dream in which uh, they were going to be put to death. And then Daniel asked for a time in which they could pray over this. And they did so and came back to the king with, with, with the, the answer to, to what this dream it was interpreted to be of the image of this statue made with gold and, and silver and brass and iron and so on. Remember what Daniel said to King Nebuchadnezzar. The head of gold is your kingdom, O king. And God has given you this power and strength and glory. And the kingdoms that follow you, the rest of this body that you saw in your dream, they are other kingdoms, but they don't even compare to your kingdom. Well, it seems not so long after that this king, who acknowledged God and his interpretation through Daniel, now raises up a statue. And it would seem to me, and perhaps as we read this, it would seem that this statue must have some resemblance of the dream that he had. And it's almost as if Nebuchadnezzar is now in defiance to the dream he had, to this small stone that came and destroyed that whole statue, is saying, but I will be king. My gods will be king. 
And he makes not only the head of gold, but the whole body of gold as well. And it seems to be this is the very character of this king, Nebuchadnezzar, as we read of him in this book of Daniel. And this king calls all these people, all of his rulers, no doubt, to spread this message to all the lands which they were ruling over. Up to, they say, a 100,000 rulers were called together to, to bring this, this kingdom to a united political and religious power. That is what is still being propagated today. Let's not fool ourselves into thinking this isn't a goal and a desire of evil men. And not only evil men. When we see the working of the devil himself in this passage, behind the scenes, if you will, why is it that these certain Chaldeans came against the Jews? the people of God. And it's true in our present time as well. It is this present world and all different facets of it that really have a focus upon those who will stand for the truths of God's word and what he calls sin is sin and what he calls righteousness is righteousness. And these very things are being eroded eroded today And everyone is called to submit to what the present culture and thought regarding sin and evil is. The devil has a hatred, a vehement hatred against you. And if you don't know anything about that, then maybe we need to ask ourselves the question, why? Paul told us those who will live godly shall suffer persecution. Does the devil and what he is seeking to do in our lives, is he not really disturbed by how you're living? By what you're saying, by the witness that you're not or are giving. Remember, this isn't something new. It happened here. It happened with Esther. The intent of these who are in rulership is to bring all people to subjection, to their gods. And the intention here is the same, to get these three friends of Daniel to bow down before this idol God. Now, the dilemma is, for these three men, what are we going to do? And our dilemma today is, what are we going to do? In the face of many different questions. Now let's look at what possible reasoning that these men could have had as they were faced now with this question. 
Will you bow? Will you submit? They could have looked at this occasion as saying to themselves, reasoning with themselves, it's not a big deal. We believe there is one true God. This is no God. If we just simply bow our knees, who will know the difference? We'll never perhaps be confronted with this dilemma again. We don't even need to be sincere about it. We can whisper to each other while we're on the ground on our knees and say, this God is no God. We believe in Jehovah. Another possibility, I suppose, they could have said is, if we don't bow down to, to, to this idol, we'll be burned alive. Who, who's then going to be the witness in this world? And beside that, Daniel will now be all alone. We can do this just once. God will certainly understand. He, he, he will forgive and he will be understanding of, of our bowing to this idol. We'll just ask forgiveness once we're finished. Is that what we do when we sin? We'll just ask God when we're finished for forgiveness. Number three, they could have reasoned in this foreign land. They were separated from all of their people. They were called to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar that belong to him. And we, we need to be to the Greeks the Greek. And so let's just bow down and follow the, the course and, and, and be done with it. And then we can go about our, our witnessing in this world. Or perhaps I could say, well, everyone else is doing it. What, there must be nothing wrong with it. They could look around and perhaps there are other Jewish guys who, who had come with them in the captivity and brought into Babylon and they were all bowing, so why wouldn't they? Well, that brings us to the second thing we need to consider. They did not. They would not, in any of these arguments or any others, Submit. They were dedicated in their decision to serve God alone. And when they did so, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, was furious. He was in a rage. And it seems like this is part of his character as well. Remember, he was just going to destroy all the wise men who couldn't interpret his dream. Well, here... You can imagine these three among hundreds of thousands of people, these three people, men, didn't obey him. His patience was thin. And so he calls them. When he hears it from these Chaldeans, they hadn't bowed. Is it true? Certainly. Certainly it must not be true, O men, that you have not bowed to my idol. It must be a mistake. Don't you know that I can have you burned alive in a moment? There must be some misunderstanding. I'll give you one more opportunity to bow. And when you hear the music, you must fall on your face and worship the image. There's nothing complicated about this. You will not die. And then he closes his command with this question. And who is that God who will deliver you 
out of my hand. In other words, show me allegiance or you're finished. But notice their answer. 17 and 18. If it be so, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. He's able. He's able. We don't know if he's willing. He's able. And he will deliver us out of your hand. Even if he doesn't deliver us from the furnace, we will be delivered from your hand. And if not, be it known unto the okay, we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou has set up. We are not careful, the end of 16 says, to answer thee in this matter. It's like the three men are saying, we don't need time to pray about this. We don't need time to consider this. We know the answer. And this is what it is. We will not bow. We don't need to debate this matter We will not worship your image. We are resolute. We are determined. We will never worship your image. These three men had been exercised by the grace of God that leads up to this determined decision. They had not ate of the king's meat, chapter 1. They had cried out to God for deliverance in chapter 2. And now, not knowing what the end of it would be, but depending upon God, their Father, their Savior, they rested in the confidence no matter what happens to them, no matter what the King will do. We're safe, secure by faith, trusting in Him. Are we safe and secure? Have we trusted in a Savior who has helped us along our path of life? Have you come to him as a poor and needy sinner in all your sin and all your wretchedness? And you cried out to him and he delivered. It's the entry into this life of suffering. Standing upon the basis not of what you feel, nor of what you think is best, and what you can reason in your heart, but what you believe he's calling you to do and to be. They, in effect, are saying to this king, we know that God can deliver us. We're not saying what he will do, but we know whatever happens, it will serve his glory and our salvation. We have so much more than these men had. We have the history of thousands of ages. Of those who've been suffering for the name of Christ, who stood firm and steadfast and God delivered them, or even allowing them to be put to death. He cared for those who remained, and his church continues till today. 
At the time of the Reformation, there were those who wanted also to put the church and the, the, the reality of the Bible alone and Christ alone and justification by faith alone to the test, to wipe it out. That was Satan's goal, but never realized. Satan, though he's going to try to do that, he's still doing it. We'll try, it seems, the scriptures tell us, one last final effort to accomplish this in our present world will fail. Why? Because Christ, our King, has written the story. Revelation tells us the end. We know the end. We don't know the details of the end, but just as these men didn't know the details of the end, they knew that everything will work together for those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. He will do it. We look throughout the scriptures and see how the people of God have been delivered time and again. Without fail, he will deliver us. Notice what they say. He will deliver us out of thine hand, O king, but if not, be it known to you, we will not bow. Have you learned that phrase, that understanding of really what they were saying, but if not? You may have trials and afflictions in your life, and can you say, as you pray for deliverance, as you pray for healing, as you pray for reconciliation, as you pray for all these things, are you able to say with these men, but if not, if God's way isn't the way I think would be best, if I'm not reconciled here and I'm seeking reconciliation, but they're refusing, if, if, if I'm suffering in a particular way, but God doesn't remove this suffering, can we say in submission to God, but if not, we will continue to trust him? That's the question. That's the place where these men were at when they had to give an answer to the king. They had grown up with the understanding as we have. We read it in the law this morning. We believe in God the Father who made the heavens and the earth. If he created all things and is upholding all things and his providence and his marvelous sovereignty, which we confess also and hold to be true, why are we living in fear and trepidation about all that is transpiring today in this world? Follow the the children of Israel, the picture of the church in the Old Testament. They were thirsty. God gives them water to drink. They were hungry. He gives them manna from heaven. They had enemies surround them. They are defeated. They march around a city wall and the walls fall flat. This is our God. The devil and his dominion and his kingdom have never succeeded. Oh, they have gained some maybe distance in the skirmish. 
They have maybe taken away some lives, but not without Christ. So rising from his throne as they did with Stephen, gazing upon the scene and taking his child home. If not, these men trusted faithful God for this life and the life to come. These three men had no more strength than you or I do. None. Their strength came from God. They trusted him. They surrendered their life into his hands. And how many times do we face less trials or less difficulty than these men did and were ready to throw in the towel? The calling we have this morning is to look to Christ, who's gone before us. He entered a fiery furnace of his father's wrath, he was consumed so that he can stand with us there when we are tempted and faced with this dilemma. And our answer must be determined. Our decision must be sure. He will not fail us. Here we stand. What do you think gave Martin Luther that statement as he stood before those who would want to kill him as these men in Nebuchadnezzar. Here I stand. It was God's faithfulness. We sang of that also this morning. This decision of these men wasn't made in that spur of the moment. It was a consciousness as they lived each day, as they went through each day, as they faced temptation, as they faced battling sin, as they faced relying on Christ, as they were transformed by the Spirit of Christ. This came to a culmination, but it wasn't without that practice being done day by day, moment by moment, since the time they had come to confess Him. These were men of conviction. That's what we need today. Men and women of conviction. And I'm preaching to this person as well. We're not just to pray for those who are suffering persecution. We, we ought to. There are brothers and sisters we're called to. I hope we do. The question we need to ask ourselves this morning is, am I devoted and dedicated and convicted that my decision will be no less than what these men here were able to do? Chedrat, Meshach, and Amendigo We are not careful to answer thee in this matter. It's determined in our hearts what we will do. And the king's anger in full force. We read even his face was changed. He was so enraged that these three men, his servants, would dare to defy what he had said. Heat the furnace seven times hotter. 
And he commanded his most strong men to throw them into this furnace. They took the men, bound them, threw them into the fire. It was so hot that even those soldiers, those strong men who threw them in because the heat was so intense, died on the spot. And you would expect immediate in burning up of these three men in, in pain and suffering. But what do we read? The three fell down, bound in the midst of the fire, and all of a sudden, it seems like the fire simply devoured off all their bonds, and they get up and walk around, and then there's another who is there in the fire with them, walking and talking, and we talked about joy in the introduction. I I can't imagine what it must have been for these three people who are just facing being burnt alive to to talking with, with Someone, God, in the midst of this trial. Could you imagine anything but joy? Immediately, the king asked the question, didn't we throw three men into the fire? They said, oh, it's true, king. We cast three men. He says, lo, I see four men walking in the midst of the fire. They have no hurt. And the fourth is of form like the Son of God. This was a divine deliverance. Well, as we gather on the Lord's Day, it's the intention of God to speak to his church and to encourage them, especially in trying times. And as we consider this passage this morning, I hope and pray that will be also such for you. Yes, it's a call for us to be devoted in our dilemma, in the decision to stand for him and to speak for him. But we see here in the deliverance that is granted to these men that God is faithful. And he will be faithful to us. Whether that be in perishing in the flame or delivered from it. Because the most essential Comforting truth in this passage, I think, is the the first thing we notice about this miracle. And there's four things we could note. That one like the Son of Man was there immediately in the most pressing moment of need. Now, did Nebuchadnezzar know Christ and know Theophanies? It's not, we could talk about who this might be, and, and later he says it's an angel. But the point really is here, God, whether it was through an angel or whether it was through the theophany of Jesus himself being present, is not the point. The point is, God was there. And the point is, God is here. It's such a comforting knowledge to know that Christ said when he departed in the ascension into heaven, I will be with you. How? My Father and I will come and make our abode in you. We will live in you. We know this. These men didn't have much of that understanding at all. We do. We're told. 
in the New Testament, these things. So do we believe that for comfort, for joy in the face of tribulations and trials? There is no flame, no suffering that the believer encounters where the Lord is not with them. Now, let me clarify. It may seem as if he's not there. I suspect as these three men are being ready to be thrown, they're wondering, this is it. God's not here to deliver us. But in the flame, he appears. And that's often how he sanctifies us. He will test us like Abraham. Will you give to me your most valued heart attached possession, your son, Isaac? And immediately Abraham goes to the mountain and is ready to slay him. Are you and I ready to give our most sacred in our eyes possession to serve God as these men did? It may not be in our consciousness, in our feeling that God is present. And we need to exercise self-examination. Why would this be? We need to cry out to God that we would walk in the joy of the Lord and in the Spirit of Christ. We need to do all of those things. And God can sovereignly withhold some of that, even in times of trial and suffering, to teach us. But He's there. That does not change. It's that we don't have eyes often to see it. As... Elisha's servant didn't have eyes to see all the protection surrounding them, even though the king and his armies had come to take them captive. He's there. That's the first thing we see here. Paul says, we are always delivered unto death. But Christ dwells in me. Job said, though he slay me, Yet will I trust him. David said, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art with me. These men, I I suspect, had a more blessed time of communing in the furnace than all the pleasure Nebuchadnezzar had in his entire life. And if we're seeking to have the pleasure and joy that this world will provide, thinking this will give us some comfort, this history is telling us, no. The comfort we have is in obedience and submitting to our Father and His will. The Son of God will not leave His church in the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Why not? I said already, Because he went through it. He took it on himself. And he was consumed for their sake. That he might deliver them when they find themselves in any furnace as well. But the second miracle we see here is that 
we read they are loosed. Jesus looses them. The fire consumes the cords or, or they fall off, whatever it might be, but they're free. Someone could bind their bodies, but no one could capture their souls. No one. If we are in Christ, we are free. No one can take away your liberty in Christ. No one. And yet, many of the children of God walk in bondage. Being bound, various things. And this loose thing often, even when we are bound by sin and addictions and trials, these things are often released, often set free when we go through suffering. It was really the opposite of what Nebuchadnezzar intended. He intended to bind them, but the reality was throwing them in the furnace in this suffering, they are set free. A third thing that we see in this this deliverance is that they they're not hurt they're not suffering in that sense there's no pain the flame the flames of the evil one could not come near thee isaiah 43 says fear not for i have redeemed thee i've called thee by name thou art mine when thou passest through the water i will be with thee through the rivers they will not overflow thee when thou walkest through the fire thou shalt not be burned neither shall the flame kindle upon thee for i am the lord thy god the holy one of israel thy savior he's there in the fire He's with you, my friend, whatever your circumstance, whatever your pressing need, whatever your struggles, whatever your dilemma. If you have fled to Christ by faith and you are in him, he's there. The last miracle we see is that when they come out of the fire, you know, children, when you're sitting around a campfire in these days and, and before you go to bed and... You wake up the next morning, and what do you still smell? Smoke in your clothes. And you would suspect these men would have smelled in some way of smoke. There was not a particle of the odor of this smoke left on them. I'm not sure it means this, but I thought about what it will be when one day no particle of sin will be left. It will be purged completely. And we will stand before the one who is with us, pure, undefiled, reconciled, sons and daughters, forever in glory. So even if these men had died in the flame and God had permitted that to happen, which he sometimes does, they would have immediately been caught up perfect, never to face trial, suffering, sin again. We won't live forever. 
We're all going to die. But how will we die? Notice the result for these men. Having stood, they're not only delivered from this burning, fiery furnace, but God is glorified not only in that, but in now the king, Nebuchadnezzar, is faced with the reality he can't deny. Your God is the true God. And he calls all of his people and all of these who formerly bowed to this image to worship this true God, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the God of the Jews. And God is able to do the same today. He is able to revive our world. It may not necessarily mean that indeed he's coming on the clouds soon. He's coming. But it may mean that in the face of all that we're facing today in this present world, he will yet once more revive this world and cause those who are seeking to destroy him and his name and his kingdom and his church and his people that it will not be denied what he is doing and has done. And people will come and worship. But that means that you and I will need to be faithful. We will need to be witnesses and martyrs to him. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we come. We come for strength. We come for wisdom. We come for forgiveness. We come for confirmation of the truths we have heard in our own hearts. And so let us stand strong and united together in the cause of our Lord and Savior. Because we have heard of the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He still lives. And so help us to trust in thee, that we would see thy glory being revealed, even in our present dark and evil day, and cause that Christ would be lifted up, and men and women and children be drawn to him. Bless our time and the instruction given in various ways today. Keep us also today, bringing us back to hear thy word again tonight. Hear our prayer now, for Jesus' sake. Amen.